0: The sharp babe has such teeth, dear And it shows them pearly white Just a jackknife has old Maggie babe, And it keeps it uh, out of sight You know when that sharp bites With his teeth, babe
1: This is What Matters Most, with your host, Paul Samuel Dolman, student, seeker, and the author of Hitchhiking with Larry David. Now sit back, relax, and get conscious. Enjoy the show.
0: Welcome back to What Matters Most, and today we are so inspired to have on one of our favorite authors, a great historian, a great American, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author, numerous other awards for writing, also a mentor and a hero to me personally. Welcome back, David McCullough. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. There's a new book out, The American Spirit. It's a wonderful collection of speeches you've made on the fundamental American principles unique to this country. What inspired this particular work? I
1: guess the uh, contentiousness, negative aspects of last year's election and so much that was said by people on both sides of all the different issues, and the sense that uh, we need to be reminded, and we do always need to be reminded of who we are and what we stand for, and that we have an amazing history, an amazing story as a nation. It's one that we have every reason to be proud of, but also to learn from. Knowing history, reading history is a great way to learn. And um, I think it always should be taught that way and always should be written that way because it's, history is human. It's about the human experience, the human, human beings. Jefferson said it in his immediate first line, what in the course of human events? And the, the operative word there is human. And we've been through troubles before. We've had uh, narrow escapes from disaster and we've had disaster we've always come through and we need to be reminded of that but there's certain basic tenets of behavior and and uh, loyalty to our country and to our what we stand for that we need to be reminded of i hope that some of what i've said over the years i've been giving talks up and down the land for a long long time and i went through uh, I don't know how many in total, nearly a 100, I guess, and pulled out uh, 15 that I feel address some of what's germane and very much on people's minds today. I hope that this will remind us, as I said, of who we are and what we've accomplished and what we can keep on accomplishing.
0: Will you remind us of a few of those tenets that you so eloquently do speak about in your talks?
1: Well, one of them, obviously, is honesty. Another one is a firm belief in the importance of learning, of education, education for all, for everybody. And I like, for example, to remind our fellow citizens, when I can, of the extraordinary gift that we take for granted of our public library system. No nation in the world has anything like it, and it's all free, free to the public, as it says over the main doorway of many libraries, that's there for us to enlarge our knowledge, enlarge our understanding and our appreciation of the adventure of learning, of the of the joy of learning, the enlargement of life through books and ideas. And that our Congress, for example, has had sad and dangerous and boring moments down the centuries, but it's also accomplished exceptional steps in the right direction, just as we have had exceptional presidents who, through the power of the use of the English language, lifted us up, put our sights higher than we might have otherwise. John Kennedy comes to mind, of course, right away. We will go to the moon. And we did. Do something for your country. A lot of us at that time took that as a as our motto. And we Young, of course, we quit our jobs and went off to serve the country in the best way we could, and uh, changed our lives and I hope helped change things for the better for our country. And I was very honored to be asked, for example, to give a commemorative talk at the memorial service that was held in Dallas just uh, three years ago uh, to honor the death of Kenny Kennedy, and that was a, the hardest role I ever had to play as a speaker because it was very emotional. There were over 5,000 people there and it was raining and it was cold and miserable. And I thought, can I get through this? Well, I did because I think I took inspiration and backbone from the crowd, from those people, many of them who come from very distant places all over the country to be there to honor that tragic moment. And so to be asked to do that, was, for me, one of the highest tributes I've ever received. And I felt I had to measure up. That's one of the speeches that's in the book.
0: You also make history come alive with the people, and you spoke of great presidents. One of your masterpieces is your book about John Adams. Thank you. You're welcome. What struck me in that that book was the man had unbelievable integrity. It cost him the election in a way, I believe, just had tremendous integrity, refused to own slaves at that time. He and his wife, both of them, tremendous character.
1: Yes, he was the only one of, of the first seven presidents. There were only two that didn't own slaves. And he was the first. And the second was his son, John Quincy Adams. And that was a, a matter of principle. Principle, strength of character, character are re- what really count in, in leadership. There's no better way to learn about leadership, to learn about what constitutes great leadership, than history. And when you run into somebody like Adams, it really lifts one's spirits, lifts one's confidence. Has anyone who has ever written history or taken a strong interest in it? It's marvelous for for the people that you meet, the people you get to know. And you can get to know these people, particularly set out to write a book about one of them. You get to know them in ways you, you you can't know people in real life, because for one thing, in real life you, you don't get to read other people's mail. A big source of a biographer's material are the letters that, that they wrote in the days past when people wrote letters. The letters between John and Abigail Adams are are in themselves a, a chronicle of a time like no other, and and remind us of their values. You don't get too big for your britches. You don't brag about yourself. You, you, don't, you tell the truth. You're tolerant. You're kind. And my work on the Wright Brothers was a, a, a different kind, a different kind of America, a different kind of time, and there was all the rest. But I was so struck in working on that book, how much of what constituted their outlook on life, their attitude about life, came from the way they were raised at home. And I think that's true for all of us. What are those fundamental things that you were brought up because of the way your parents or your whoever raised you in, in your home, put on the table, as it were, uh, for you for the rest of your life. In the case of the, the Wright brothers, their parents, particularly their father, who was an itinerant minister, told them the best the best life is life with a with purpose. And I I fully agree with that. And one of the Consistent themes, not just in my book, but in our national story unto itself, is how many of the people that made the country what it is, who gave us all the advantages and all the comforts and all the reasons to want to be the best we can be uh, from times past, they had purpose. They had something they really wanted to do that could be of value. The world would be a little better off for having them on on the earth for however time, how much time they allotted by their fate or whatever. I think that one of the most exciting things about my experience, my career, if you will, in history, has been how many marvelous people I've come to know who aren't well-known, who aren't um, words or names that everybody immediately knows who you are. Benjamin Rush, for example, Who figures quite prominently in one of my talks in the book, one chapter of the book? Absolutely phenomenal human being. But most people have no idea who he is or what he was. He was a doctor and a a part of the revolutionary time. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was the first doctor to think that insanity should be treated with kindness and help and, and that there was a way to improve a person with a mental difficulty other than just locking them in a room. He was all for teaching the Romance languages, French and Spanish, way before anybody else was. Uh, And on and on. Had a very close friend of both Jefferson and Adams, and in fact, he was the one that got them, after they had had years of being intense rivals, really, enemies almost, he got them to patch things up and become friends again, which in itself was a fascinating accomplishment. But that's the kind of person that I think I love to find out about. And I have, a, I have this sense that we all ought to find out about it. We all have, ought to have the, the joy and discovery that comes with learning about a life like that.
0: Well, when I picked up the Wright Brothers book, the big shock was how amazing the father was, who, in my opinion, really is the star of the book and the values he instilled
1: Well, I think so, too. In fact, people have asked me often if I could um, have an hour's interview with any one of those characters in the Wright brothers' story, which would it be? And it would be their father, because for one thing, he was there for all of it. He knew exactly what they were like from childhood on, and he was a very close observer and a very accurate observer.
0: He instilled a great, uh, another great American value, or really any great value: hard work. All these people in your books, the ones that are truly successful—oh, absolutely right—are so hardworking. Theme of purpose for the sake of something larger than yourself,
1: and the and the idea of making something. We we Americans are builders by instinct. We love to build cabins in the on the frontier. We love to. We love to build the Brooklyn Bridge or the Panama Canal. We love to build a whole new university. Or, uh, and 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 so often those structures are emblematic of something larger than themselves, being connected to the world as, as the Panama Canal did for us, as nothing of that kind ever had before. Of the, the Im- importance of education emphasized by a marvelous uh, library or central building in the middle of a beautiful campus, that's a, an, ex, an expression of the virtue and desire for learning. And, and it could go on and on, Needless used to say. Now, yes, of course, we've had times when we built means of destruction and we built things we might not be so proud of. We had slave markets, and we had a number of things that were disgraceful in, at the time, and, and we must not ever forget what it took to undo those mistakes and who did it and who, who paid the price of suffering or their lives in order to achieve correction of, of a very serious discalculation, inhumane, and, and uh, not American. In every generation, we see improvements. In my own lifetime, I've seen huge improvements. Just imagine, for example, what's been accomplished in medicine in the last 30 years, let alone 75 years. And we just take it for granted. Brilliant. And dedication is what makes it happen. Willingness to fail at something, and then you figure out what went wrong, and you fix it. And eventually, maybe, you you will succeed. It's called the empirical method very American. There was a fellow in a steel mill out in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He used to say when we were building new machinery, he'd say, all right, let's start, let's start it up and see why it doesn't work. That's what we've been doing all along.
0: It's funny you mentioned medicine because I remember a great talk I was lucky enough to have with you up at your house in uh, West Tisbury. We were talking about great Americans, and you were talking then that day about Jonas Salk, who not only invented penicillin but gave it away. Now billions of dollars, but he didn't care. He just wanted to help. It, that was that spirit that Kennedy evoked. Come give something back. Don't look to take. Your greatest joy I have found in life is when I do give of myself selflessly. The virtue has its own reward.
1: Yes, indeed. And good people, good, valuable people, valuable citizens, valuable friends, fabulous wonderful neighbors come in all shapes and sizes and from all parts of the world. And one of the things that I stress in the, in this new book is my, is the importance of immigrants, the importance of immigration. We are all immigrants at heart. We all came here from somewhere else. I love for you. For fact, for example, that our capital city, Washington, DC was designed by an immigrant. The capital building was designed by an immigrant. Uh, The White House was designed by an immigrant. Just to take that as a starter, Irving Berlin, God bless America, he was an immigrant. and It goes on and on. If you took all the immigrants out of our mix, it would be a very uh, far less interesting, far less creative, far less colorful, far less enjoyable population.
0: I'm glad you made that point, because the richness of America has been the Statue of Liberty symbolism and that these people came here with a dream absolutely for something better. And I was reading an article that all these Nobel Prize winners for, who are Americans over the last century overwhelmingly were Im- immigrants who came here and called this land home.
1: Yep. Well, New England, the Puritans, were, they were immigrants. They were coming here for a better life. And they established a better life.
0: I like what you said. Unless you're a Native American, basically, we're all here from somewhere else.
1: Sure. We're all immigrants. And I'm fascinated by it. I haven't talked to anyone who's done it, and I've done it myself, but this new way that you can have your your uh, heritage broken down for you, who your ancestors were. I, I, again and again, at least according to what they show about it on television, people are, are astounded to find that they don't just come from Italy or or, uh, Buenos Aires or Ireland. They cover about five different places or 15 different places.
0: Our friend Dr. Henry Gates from The Vineyard has actually been doing that on his shows. There's DNA testing and people literally fall off the chair when they see where they're really from. It's unbelievable. We're all connected. Yeah. Can Can a country that ignores history... Thrive? I would think not. I don't think you can be wise. Wisdom is in the pages of history, in which we are doomed to repeat if we don't read.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and we, are, and this is a very strong theme in my book, we have been raising for about 30 years or more several generations of Americans, young Americans, who are by and large historically illiterate. I know this because I've invited to lecture or speak at commencements, and have been doing it for more than 50 years and I've seen the change in how much these very bright and well-educated people how much they don't know about their own background, their own country and knowing history is particularly important for people in positions of responsibility people in positions of, of leadership Uh, harry truman said it wonderfully He said the only new thing in the world is the history you don't know so if you don't know about the wars that have been fought or the epidemics that have been uh, resolved or the geniuses who have worked out the solution to an age-old problem uh, and, and you have to make decisions as a leader of which way you will go you don't know about consequences on the big stage, on the big screen, as it were, sufficiently. That's part of the preparation for leadership. It doesn't matter whether you're leading a country or leading a, a university or leading a great corporation or leading a cause of some kind. The lessons of history are infinite, and they're important as can be. My friend Dan Borston, who used to be the librarian of Congress, said that trying to go through life with no knowledge of history is like trying to plant cut flowers. You, you it doesn't work. It sure is.
0: I don't think you can be a great leader if you don't, if you're not a reader. You'd have to be a reader just to have that contemplative aspect.
1: Ah, uh, leaders, leaders are readers. And I, if you, look, if one looks at the history of, the, let's say, just the presidency, there are a few exceptions, but not many. The best of them, the most effective, strongest leaders among the whole lineup of presidents have all been avid readers of history. In the case of several of them, they were historians. Woodrow Wilson was, as you know, a professor of history. Teddy Roosevelt wrote a very good history of the Naval War of 1812, which he began while he was still in college. John Kennedy wrote three different works of history. Eisenhower wrote, in my view, one of the best books ever written about World War II. And he wrote it in, uh, entirely himself. Roosevelt read history, and, and there have been many others, and they learned from it. History and or biography, but a biography of historic figures of his historic importance.
0: Do you think there's a direct con- connection to what you mentioned about how we've relegated the learning and the value of history and the current predicament we find ourselves in politically and culturally?
1: Yes, I do. of our colleges and universities no longer require taking any history at all in order to graduate. How about that? I, I personally, I personally think we've got to go back to more, not fewer, uh, required courses. Because for one thing, I think it's important for young people to realize that in life, some things are required. It can't and shouldn't always be how you want it. Uh, that you know what you're after. You know what you want. How do you know if you've never taken that fantastic teacher who can make whatever she's talking about or he infinitely exciting and fascinating? I tell students, don't take the course, take the teacher, find out who are the great teachers, the great stimulating leaders of, of, of ideas and innovation that take those people, whatever they teach. I had it happen to me in college. I've never gotten over it. Required course in the, science, I found out the easiest one was geology. So I took geology and I loved it. And I took more courses in geology. And it's figured in several of my books in a major way. Well, of course, it's also history of a different kind.
0: Who was it that lit the great fire of this passion about history? Because I can never be with you without you just telling me some great piece that I was unaware of. And I could tell... You love it as much today as you probably did 40 years ago. It's so alive for you, the passion, the love.
1: Well, I, I, grew, I grew up with it. My family had been living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised for many generations. And they would tell stories about the old days and the floods and the fires and the strikes and so forth, the eccentric members of our family in years past, which is, it was my favorite part. And I had some very good history teachers in school, uh, all the way through college. But it was really when I, I was an English major in college. I wanted to be a writer. It was really when I started reading the works of people like Barbara Tuckman and Bruce Catton and a number of others after finishing college when I was first went to work in New York. And, um, I really got hooked on, on knowing more and more about whatever it was, whether it was Civil War or, Depression, or or almost anything, and then I, it, this idea of writing history suddenly began to grow in my head. But what really did it was when I, because I went, quit my job in New York to go to do something for my country, working for the U.S. Information Agency during the Kennedy years, happened to find some material about the Johnstown Flood while I was doing research on something else up at the Library of Congress. And I got interested in why that terrible disaster happened. There wasn't a book that was, I felt, adequate for the size and the importance of the subject. And I said to myself, why don't you try and write the book you wish you could read? It doesn't exist, you write it, and then you can read it. So that's what I did. And once I got started, I knew this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So that's more than 50 years ago.
0: And you want to share the great water cooler story? How, when you would hear people talking about the book they were going to write when you were young, you decided That's right.
1: and these were these were old yeah, these were old guys, they were probably thirty <laughs> or forty forty two and they well, i 'm going to write a book, so I, damn it i 'm not going to be one of these old guys' talks like that.
0: I love that story, and you thought i 'm not going to be that guy, and you decided.
1: And if I, if I failed, if I didn't do it, fine, I would at least have given it a try.
0: And you came home and your amazing wife, when you said, I'm going to quit my job and write a book, when most men you would think would have got a frying pan in the head, you had quite a different reaction.
1: Yep, no, she's been absolutely inspiring and full of confidence in what I was, whatever I was working on. And uh, we went through some pretty rough times. But at the same time, in order to make Ken's meet. We sold our house in New York, moved into a little old house that we bought on on the vineyard, Music Street in West Isbury, raised our kids there and, and the happiest, happiest family life imaginable. None of those now grown mothers and fathers in their own ways, none of them ever regretted they were living on the vineyard. They all were thrilled that they grew up on the vineyard, still are. And I'm glad to report that they're all still going there, establishing their own way of life there. Times have changed. We paid $14,000 for our house, furnished. And that's the same house we have now.
0: I've been to that house. And isn't it on the vineyard when you went up to see her is when you decided you were going to marry her or you hoped she would marry you?
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. I not only thought she was wonderful, I just adored it by this vineyard. I never... I'd never I'd never heard a seagull before. I'd never. I was inland following. And, um, oh, it was so beautiful, so wonderful. And she has such a collection of characters in her family.
0: I can't think of a better place to grow up. And you talk about history and to raise children and to write and follow your heart. Think. And there's no, you cannot put a value or a price on what you did. You had the courage to live the life you felt called to do. And what better example is that as a father to kids and grandchildren, or anybody?
1: Well, get this one. This is what I really love. I'm now working on another book, a new book, about the settlement of the Northwest, the old Northwest Territory, meaning Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, all of that, northwest of the Ohio River. And the first people to go out and settle there uh, came from Massachusetts. leader and the man who put the Northwest Ordinance Through the Continental Congress, even before we had a before we had a uh, Constitution, was an incredible um, polymath, as they call him, figure from the 18th century, named Manasseh Cutler, and he was both a congregational minister, a lawyer, and a doctor, and a botanist, and about 18 other things. He succeeded in getting the Congress to pass a bill that said that in this territory, which Size of all of France, and there were no no settlements there as yet uh, this was at the end of the revolution that in that territory there would be complete freedom of religion, there would be public supported education all the way through college, and there would be no slavery after he graduated from Yale. he went and ran a store on in Edgartown, and two of his sons who were involved with the settlement of Ohio, these pioneers, were born there. In order to get to Ohio, you have to go through Pittsburgh. So my my sons like to kid me and say, well, of course, you've got to write this book. He went to Yale. His his sons were born on the vineyard. He lived on the vineyard. And you have to go through Pittsburgh in order to get to Ohio.
0: It's destiny. (laughs) It It is. City, and I'll add a twist that my very first my very first job in the vineyard ever was in Egertown at Cutler's bike store at the at the foot of uh, main and water. I mean, uh, foot in Dock Street. I think it is. They were old vineyard family. The C- R.H. Cutler bikes right there on Dock.
1: The son was Ephraim Cutler. And, and these, the, my book is called The Pioneers. And the leader of the Pioneers was Ephraim Cutler. Excuse me, Mnessica, for the father, the Reverend. Now his home was in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Still there. His church is still there. So this is very much of a Massachusetts story from all the way through.
0: Like you said, you have this gift. When you dig, you find these characters that have changed our country that no one's ever heard about. Unbelievable. That—that that sounds fascinating.
1: Well, and and this 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 particular subject, I I found. Largely just luck, a collection of letters and diaries such as I have never seen, all in one place. And they are all at the archive at Marietta College in Marietta, Ohio, which is, was the first settlement. It was, and, and Vanessa Cutler picked that site without ever having been there by talking to the geographers who had done surveys out there. The man was phenomenal. He left the vineyard because he decided that Mercantile life was not for him he wanted to become a minister, and that that's what he did
0: You're as much a detective as you are a writer
1: <laughs> well i i I think that curiosity is is one of the one of the aspects of human nature that we need to stimulate more in students and young people uh, to ask questions they're so accustomed to have to, to have the right answer. And I don't think that's the entire way to go about it. Curiosity is what distinguishes us from the cabbages. Uh, we want to find out why is that? Who who did that? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Uh, what did they have to go through to accomplish it? That's what really interests me.
0: Well, if you combine curiosity, integrity, and hard work, I can't see how you wouldn't have a beautiful life.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have had, I've had a wonderful time. I love my work. I get up every morning eager to get right to it. And I uh, really don't want to. I don't play golf or tennis or have a sailboat. I have a boat, but I have to have valet sailing with <laughs> my. One of our sons, we have a beautiful boat built by Ben, ben and Benjamin, and, and um, we love
0: it. We have a great mutual friend, a builder on the island named Colin White, who had come through and we had dinner the other night, and he told me a fabulous story. Some guy who went on to be a famous writer showed up hungover, couldn't do the interview f- for the New York Times, his first one. And you basically guided him through it. The guy went on to have this tremendous career because you asked the question to answer and you said, don't ask this. You were so kind to the guy. <laughs> you and I said, only in the vineyard could you hear that story at the salad bar at Kronik's. That's the magic <laughs> That was Colin told me that, so he wanted to say he loves you too, like the rest of us. And I said, David's not slowing down. He's got four hundred ideas, and and he <laughs> he never stops. It it kind of challenges all of us to like keep our game going.
1: <laughs> well, one of, one of the um, great good fortunes of my college years was that Thornton Wilder was a fellow of the college that I lived in, the Yale-Davenport you know, College. You could come in, and he'd be sitting, having lunch in the dining hall, and go over. and Beside him, You could go over and sit down and have a nice conversation with Orton Wilder. Well, I was went into one of those lunch counter places in Egertown, down by where where you park, back from the yacht club. There's Orton Wilder sitting up at the counter. So there's an empty seat beside him, so I sat down. And we just sort of picked up where we, where we left off, and I thought, only on the vineyard.
0: Probably to the Dock Street Joiner, and for the people, and the people that haven't had the privilege to know yet like I did, because I used to play the piano at the Harbor View. Nobody knows the American Songbook or has a better time singing it than you. We've I've been at your house, and you know what's great is I'll play something from Oklahoma or South Pacific, and then you have some great backstory about how it came to be or the composers. Someday maybe there's a book in there about music in America, but you and you know the lyrics.
1: Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I I, I had this thing. I love lyrics. To me, they're a form of, of poetry, and the great lyricists—they were—they're writing American poetry. And Hammerstein's many of the Hammerstein pieces for Oklahoma, for example, and of course Cole Porter to me is just the genius of geniuses. The Still of the Night is a beautiful poem if you just look at it up words on paper. They're not writing, they don't write lyrics like that no more. But I, 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 must know the, I must know the words, I don't know how many hundred songs, but I never memorized it. I, I can't quote Shakespeare or, or Pope or anything like that. <laughs> I wish I could, but I don't know them. So I'm sure it has some many of you, it, if it's connected to a melody, that melody is what puts the words into your brain. But I also know the words, the songs that, aren't exactly considered great literature, like Chiquita Banana or something like that. Well, do you remember Ed Wise?
0: I love Ed Wise. He's so talented, super talented guy.
1: Yeah, we did, it. We did a concert together at the uh, Tabernacle.
0: Oh, I was there that night. It was fabulous.
1: And we just did one down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which was a lot of fun. Because uh, when Gershwin was working on Porgy and Vess, he went down to Charleston, because the um, guy who wrote the novel uh, that Porgy and Bess is based on uh, lived in Charleston, and the notes that that he and Gershwin made about their work on the on Porgy and Bess are in the uh, in the library there, the part of the archive. And so we did a concert, about half of which Ted playing Gershwin, and then we we talk about the the uh, song and its origins and so forth and so on. Oh my God, was it fun! He, as you know, can play anything and he uses no music. And the audience could not get over it. I think he I think he is literally a genius. You should see him do a crossword puzzle. He does he does it so fast it's over in about five minutes. And he and he does the hard ones, not the not the easy ones.
0: He is a tremendous talent and an interpreter of song.
1: I don't know if you ever seen the the, the the where he does the numbers called the Strenuous Life Rag. And it's the one that uh, Scott Joplin wrote as a tribute to Teddy Roosevelt because Roosevelt had had Booker T. Washington as a guest for lunch at the White House. And it was the first time in memory that a president had had a black guest who sat at the table, didn't wait on the table. And Scott Joplin was so moved by that, he wrote this wonderful, strenuous life rag. Well, President Bush Sr., George H.W., invited me to come speak at the White House and bring Ed along. And he played it on the huge Steinway in the in the East Room. As far as we know, it was the first and still the only time that that piece was ever actually played in the White House. And oh, 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 boy, did he play it.
0: Wow, that's a great story. Wow. Like you said, though, he just sits down and what a catalog. It's like... Th- I couldn't even count how many songs. And and your love of music, too. That's the first time I ever met you. I was playing the piano at the View. You came up with a glass of wine. <laughs> I knew who you were. I had no idea you loved music so much. But by the end of the night, I thought, I think in another life, David could have been a song and dance man. And-
1: oh, song and dance man. <laughs> well, this has been a delightful time talking with you. I hope it's sort of what you had in mind.
0: Oh, this is... This is all that and then some, and I am looking forward to the new book coming out uh, on the day this is aired, and I look forward to seeing you this summer, in Martha's Vineyard, in the clear skies.
1: Well, let's go on. Let's if we go to lunch or do something.
0: You got it. I'll come by and play a, little, a few tunes and you can uh, sing.
1: <laughs> now you're talking.
0: Sing a little Oklahoma and South Pacific and Sound of Music. All the best to your beautiful bride and the CEO, and we love you, David, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you, pal. Thank you very, very much. Climb every mountain, search high and low. I what matters most with your host paul samuel dolman please follow paul on facebook twitter and instagram and go to paulsamueldolman.com for the latest news and updates